Christ would be magnified. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, amen. Our scripture reading this morning comes from Acts chapter 21. Hallelujah, we beat out, we finished out, I shouldn't beat out, we finished out Acts chapter 20. That was a beast. We had to look at some things pertaining to uh, suffering for the Lord, and we had to look at some things pertaining to elders, and that was particularly timing, uh, poignant timing, as we are uh, on the verge of, of discussing, perhaps as a church, approving, calling Tyler Walkton to serve as one of our elders here at First Baptist Church. So that was a great reminder. And uh, having concluded Acts chapter 20, now we're in uh, chapter 21. And so I just invite you as you're able, wherever you are again, would you please stand in the honor of the reading of God's word this morning. We're going to be reading verses 1 to 16. Acts chapter 21. It says, When we had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kaz, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patera. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and we set sail. When we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left side, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we departed and we went on our journey, and they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we, we prayed and we said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship and they returned home. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemaeus, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea. And we entered the house of Philip, the evangelist, who was one of the seven. This is a reference to the original deacons, one of the seven original deacons. It says, we, we came to the house of Philip, who, and the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and we stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. I, uh, this is totally uh, not related to the message today, but I, I do feel compelled just to note that these were four unmarried daughters. And uh, so often in our society, there's this intense pressure, even with, within the church. You know, you, you're, you're a Christian woman, you need to get married. Like The pressure is on, find a husband. And here we see that that's never been true. It's always been the call of God's people to walk with the Lord, whatever direction he carries them in. And we see here that the... Uh, the evangelist Philip had four daughters, not married, not married. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. And while we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt, and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, you notice it, 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 it's the first person plural, we. So Luke is including himself in this group. Luke is saying, I, I, when I heard this, I did this as well. He says, when we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, what are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready 
not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he wouldn't be persuaded, we ceased and we said, let the will of the Lord be done. After these days, we got ready and we went up to Jerusalem and some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Manasseh of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading of his word. Amen. Would you please, as you're able, just continue to remain standing as we continue in worship this morning. Amen. You may be seated. I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 21. We're going to be looking this morning at uh, verses 1 to 16. As you're making your way to Acts chapter 21, um, one thing that I I do want to remind you of, uh, in May of last year, when prohibitions against public gatherings were relaxed and churches were encouraged, in fact, by Dr. Bonnie Henry to resume gathering. I forget exactly which day it was. I want to say it was the 24th or something like that. It, that, that first Sunday back, we, we were ready to go. We had our safety plan in place. We'd already done all this sort of stuff, talking with, with the health authorities. And uh, as soon as they allowed us to get, come back that very next Sunday, we were back. And uh, the worship of the Lord's people, and, and we'd only missed maybe two months, I think it was, eight weeks. Um, but the worship that Sunday, it was just phenomenal, just spectacular. A group of 50 people just pouring out their hearts completely to the Lord. It was really a rich time. And so we've been gone now since November 19th, I think it was, and here we are mid-February. That's, uh, that's three months, four months, November, December, January, no, three months, three months. Um, but, I mean, it, it'll be rich. It'll be a rich time when we come back together. So just know we're ready to resume the moment, the second. We are here. You are welcome to come the moment it is relaxed, uh, that the restrictions are, are lifted. And we'd invite you to do that because the, the cameras and the microphones never could capture the way the Spirit is working in this room. They just never could. And we don't want you to miss out on that. So join us just as soon as you possibly can. In Acts chapter 21, uh, initially I had thought to myself, what we will do as we look at this passage this week is we, there, there's a number of, of, uh, of concerns that we need to pick apart, that we need to dissect and look at in order to really appreciate everything that's going on here. And I had initially thought what we'll do is we'll consider the conviction that Paul had to go to Jerusalem but the more I prayed about it and the more I thought about it, um, we're going to talk about that next week. What I feel we really need to do today is we need to talk about this passage from a very specific point of application towards young people. I think that one of the things we need to look at here is the goal that the Apostle Paul had and the drive to follow God's will. And what that really means, and the reason why I feel it's very, we'll we'll get into all of this in a second, but we're going to apply it specifically, we're looking at it today from the perspective of uh, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22 year olds, young adults who are now uh, sort of leaving home or maybe not leaving home as the case may be. And I want to just look at this text from their perspective. I, I say all that to say 
that this will be immediately applicable to young adults. And you might be wondering, well, okay, this doesn't have anything to say to me as a mid-40s, mid-70s individual, and you might be reaching even now to hit the stop streaming button on your computer or your smartphone. And I just want you to know that we're all called to hear this and to be reminded of this, and I do believe the Holy Spirit will take this text and apply it to each of us, in, regardless of our own individual life circumstances. But if nothing else, I want you to hear this passage as it is exegeted from a perspective on young people, that you may be an encouragement to our young people. And that's very, very important. So with that said, I just want to focus in here on this last little bit. I want to read this, and then we'll pray, and we'll ask the Holy Spirit to illuminate the text. And then, and then we'll jump in, we'll dig in, and we'll get to work. But uh, if it, essentially, they're, they're trying to tell Paul, look, Paul, the Holy Spirit is clear. Bad things are happening in Jerusalem. When you get to Jerusalem, bad things are going to happen. Don't go to Jerusalem. And uh, verse 13, Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the sake of the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be, pers- be persuaded, we ceased and we said, Let the will of the Lord be done. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we just say thank you so much for your word, its clarity to us, even the manner in which this relationship unfolds between believers amongst brothers and sisters, all ultimately looking towards the guidance of the Holy Spirit, all seeking to fulfill the goal of the Great Commission, and yet coming to radically different conclusions about what that ought to look like or what the correct direction is or what the right path forward may be. Father, I pray this morning that as we look at this text, that you would just work in our hearts to open our eyes to see the need to pursue goals, but also the need to understand how the Holy Spirit leads us. Father, we pray over the weeks ahead as we begin to look at this passage, as we begin to understand what your word is revealing to us in the way that you guided and ministered to the Apostle Paul that we would be so enriched that we could count on and understand what it is we're looking for when we turn to you for your guidance and your comfort as we seek to obey you and to fulfill the Great Commission. Lord, we pray, God, that you would just drive that truth home into our hearts over these next several weeks. But this morning, Lord, above all, we just pray that you would show us, God, what it means to follow your will. Do that work through the word by the power of the Holy Spirit this morning, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. When I was in university, and particularly in the years immediately after university, one of the big questions that comes up time and time and time again is, anytime a university student or a young adult is facing a big decision in their life, they begin to ponder the question, is this God's will? And this is not an exaggeration. This is, uh, I'm not saying this to be funny. This actually happened. I did know a girl who was asked out on a date by a boy who wasn't sure that she ought to go out on this date with this boy. This is when we were in university, Dallas Baptist University in Texas, 20 some odd years ago. And she literally picked a daisy and started plucking petals date him or not to date him, date him or not to date him, as a means of securing some sort of a a sign or an omen 
not all that dissimilar from, the, say, Gideon's fleeces in the book of Judges, looking for some sort of clue, some sort of guy, some sort of design from God that he wanted her to go out with this man or, or didn't want her to go out with this man, as the case may be. And I was reminded of this just this last week. I mean, we live in a time, obviously, with the pandemic, COVID-19. Young people are now struggling to answer the question, what's the right thing to do? What's God's will? I had a conversation with someone just this past week in which this issue surfaced in much the same way. In his book, After the Baby Boomers, How 20 and 30-somethings Are Shaping the Future of Western Religion, Robert Wuthenow describes 21 to 45-year-olds as, quote-unquote, tinkerers. Tinkerers. Our grandparents built, our parents boomed in the boomer generation, and our generation, the millennials and younger, well, we're tinkerers. We tinker. Of course, as Wuthenow points out in his book, tinkering is not all that bad, those who tinker know how to improvise, they know how to specialize, they know how to pull, thing to, pull things together, they know how to pull together a broad, uh, a broad consortium of people, but there, that doesn't mean that tinkering is all good. There are also negative aspects to tinkering. We are plagued often by indecision. We uh, face contradiction, and very often what you'll find in a young Christian who is obsessed with trying to figure out their spirituality and how to work with the Lord and how to walk with the Lord, they, we, what we find is there's instability and inconsistency. We're seeing a generation of young people grow up who tinker. They tinker with doctrines. They tinker with churches. They tinker with dating or perhaps even living with that special girlfriend or that special boyfriend. They tinker with university majors, what degree they ought to get. They tinker living in and out of their parents' basement. And of course, as I've already alluded to, they tinker with different, even contradictory spiritual practices and spiritual habits. Now, what this results in is inconsistency. It results in instability. We can't make decisions. We're paralyzed, as it were. And even when we are capable of making decisions, we don't have any commitment. We don't follow through, and we'll abandon the decision just as soon as we get into it. And, and all of this hurts our ability to be faithful to the Lord, and it reduces, it, it massively reduces how fruitful we can be to the Lord. So much time squandered, wrestling back and forth, and specifically, what it leads to is this question of, what ought I to do? What is the Lord's will? That, that seems to be from the Christian millennial and younger generation. That seems to be one of the perplexing questions that we face, that we, that we confront. Consider this one statistic. In 1960, 77% of women and 65% of men completed what this, this particular sociologist considers to be all of the major transitions into adulthood, okay? In 1960, so about 60 years ago, 77% of women and 65% of men completed all of the major transitions into adulthood. By contrast, 2000, the year 2000, 40 years has passed. This, is, this statistic is 20 years old at this point. By 2000, 46%, only 46% of women and only 31% of men had completed the transition to adulthood. That's pretty stunning. 
To think that in 2000, right around the time that I'm enlisting in the Marine Corps to go and serve as a result of 9-11, right around this time, fully a third of young men my age have no clue what they want to do with their life and are perfectly content to continue living in their parents' basement. This is shocking from a Christian perspective. It's stunning for us to realize that for many of our young people, they are graduating high school and graduating youth group, many of them, with still no clear idea believing in Jesus. They're graduating a youth group with still no clear idea of how they ought to live their lives, how they ought to pursue God, how they ought to move forward in their faith. They're paralyzed. That ought to be a matter of great concern for us. I bring this whole business up. It's, um, you've heard the term adolescence. It's when a child continues to be a child as they are actually a teenager. So childhood is extending into their teenage years. Well, we're seeing today what we might call adultolescence. Our, our teenage years are now extending into our 20s and for some of us into our 30s, and for some of us even, even longer, God forbid. But I bring up this whole business of adultolescence because it is related to the spiritual issue of following God's will. One of the things that has slowly occurred to me in talking to younger people today, especially university students, is that one of the chief culprits in our failure to launch, as it were, is our endless search for knowing the will of God. It seems that our search for the will of God has become, for some of us, an accomplice in the postponement of growing up. Our search for the will of God has become, for some of us, an accomplice in our postponement of growing up. It's a convenient out, as it were, for young people floating through life without direction or purpose. And too many of our younger brothers and sisters have passed off their instability and inconsistency and endless self-exploration as, quote-unquote, looking for God's will, as if not making up your mind, not choosing a particular path forward, is somehow evidence of a deeper spiritual sensitivity. This is not what the scriptures teach. This plagues Christians. And as a result of this this concern to have this sort of deeper spiritual sensitivity, this preoccupation with discerning God's will, that magical, mystical, somehow just beyond us, just right at at the tips of our fingertips, but we can't quite wrap our fingers around it. We have to get in all this sort of weird business of pulling leaves off of daisies. At the end of all of this, what we're really doing is we're just tinkering around with what God has already explained and made explicitly clear to us. I bring all of this up because Luke, at the tail end of this passage, verse 16, verse 13, I beg, verse 14, I beg your pardon, Luke says, after this long discussion with the Apostle Paul, we said to ourselves, let the will of the Lord be done. If we want to start to answer this question, what is the will of the Lord? What is it we're to do? How do we discuss this? How do we also take into account the role of the Holy Spirit in our lives in terms of how the Holy Spirit leads us? This is a great passage for considering it. And as we look at this passage today, one of the things that I want you to see here is that God is nowhere telling you in the Word of God whether or not you should 
uh, live in Nanaimo or live in none of it, or whether or not you should get this degree or that degree. But what we see here as we look at this passage today is that God is very much concerned with us exalting the name of Christ. And as young people, as you're looking at this text today, I want you to understand that's God's call on your life regardless of any of a number of other circumstances that you might look at. Let's begin to take a look here. Verse 1, they're on their way to Jerusalem. And so Paul is, uh, he is journeying to Jerusalem, but of course, as is his custom, he tends to stop off and visit the disciples in whatever town he lands in. But he's making his way to Jerusalem. And as he's going to Jerusalem, over and over again, when he encounters people, Christian brothers and sisters who have the Holy Spirit, they begin to sense that when he gets to Jerusalem, he's going to experience a lot of pain and a lot of hardship. And they begin to tell him not to go. We see that right here, verse 1. It says, when we had parted from them, this is the Ephesian elders in Miletus, we set sail, we came to Kos, and then the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patera. It reads like a travel log. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard, we set sail, and eventually they come and they land at Tyre, for there was a ship that was to unload its cargo. Verse 4, having sought out the disciples, now they notice that in this town there are some brothers and sisters, they go looking for them, they find them, having sought them out, having found them, we stayed there with them for seven days. So they don't even know these people, they just know that they love the Lord. So they're engaging in Christian hospitality, they get there, they're like, hey, you guys love Jesus, we love Jesus, let's get together, let's have some fellowship. They say, great, they get together, Luke tells us they stayed for seven days. During the course of that time, look at this, through the Spirit, through the Holy Spirit, they were telling Paul, notice this, not to go to Jerusalem. Luke makes it clear that they meet with these disciples. These disciples have the Holy Spirit, and as they are leaning into the Holy Spirit, as they're listening to the Holy Spirit, all this is sort of implied, they get this sense that something bad is going to happen in Jerusalem, which is no surprise to Paul. If you flip back to chapter 20, you go all the way back to verse 22, Paul makes this statement to the Ephesian elders. He says, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained, that is bound, that is obligated by the Holy Spirit. That's what he says, by the Spirit. He makes that statement. He says, not knowing what will happen to me there, Verse 23, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. So Paul says, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to Jerusalem bound by the Holy Spirit. And I'm not sure what's going to happen, but I know that prison is a sure bet and afflictions of all various kinds. Wherever I go, that's going to happen. I'm going to Jerusalem. Of course, now he begins this journey. He meets up with these disciples. He's never met them before. They begin to have some fellowship. And the, the disciples, according to Luke, as Luke is describing it, through the Spirit say, hmm, probably it shouldn't go to Jerusalem. Well, why would they suggest that? Obviously, they're getting a sense, as Paul makes his way to Jerusalem, imprisonment, and afflictions await for him. Now, Paul says, I'm bound to go to Jerusalem. Imprisonment and afflictions are waiting for me. And they're saying, hey, in Jerusalem, imprisonment and afflictions are awaiting you, so don't go to Jerusalem. Do you see that? And these aren't the only guys that say this to Paul. So he continues on. The journey continues. When our days there, verse 5, when our days there were ended, 
We departed and we went out on our journey. And they all, with their wives and their children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and we said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship. They returned home. The Apostle Paul and Luke and his traveling companions, they continue on their journey. They come to uh, Ptolemaeus. They greeted the brothers that were there. They stayed with them for one day. Okay? For one day. Verse 8. On the next day, we departed and we came to Caesarea. So they've now landed there on the mainland. And we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, whom we all recall from way back, Acts chapter uh, 6, when the deacons were appointed. It says, Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and we stayed with him. Now, he had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. Why, why does Luke mention that? He doesn't mention anything that they're going to prophesy, but he says they got four daughters that, that prophesied. And he goes on to say, while we were staying there with Philip, this guy named Agabus shows up. Verse 10, while we were staying for many days with Philip, with his four unmarried prophesying daughters, while we were there, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And again, this is Jerusalem, Judea is south of Caesarea, but again, uh, scripture doesn't use up and down in terms of geographical directions like north, south. There's no idea of cardinal points from the from this perspective, it's, it's elevation. Jerusalem is up on a mountain, so they came down from the elevation of Jerusalem to Caesarea, which is a, a coastal town. And so these, uh, this Agabus fellow comes down, and he meets with Paul there. So you got four unmarried prophesying daughters, and then you've got Agabus. And they all are swarming Paul, as it were, and prophesying to Paul through the Holy Spirit. Agabus even goes so far as to take a belt, take Paul's belt, and he wraps it around his own feet and hands, and he says, this is what they're going to do to you in Jerusalem. Notice what the text says, verse 11. Coming to us, he took Paul's belt, and he bound his own feet and hands, and he said, thus says the Holy Spirit. This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt, and they will deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. So that's what he says. Paul's like, hey, you guys are breaking my heart. You need to stop doing this business. And Luke concludes in verse 14, since he would not be persuaded, we ceased, we stopped. And we said, let the will of the Lord be done. Now, here's, here's the thing. Paul has the Holy Spirit. These guys have the Holy Spirit. They're both hearing from the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is telling both of them basically the same thing. I mean, Paul is getting the idea from the Holy Spirit that when he lands in Jerusalem, he's going to be imprisoned, and he's going to be, there are other various afflictions that are awaiting for him once he gets there. Well, he meets with disciples in various towns, and they all say, through the Holy Spirit, this is what's going to happen to you. You're going to get to Jerusalem. You're going to be bound. Agabus even gets really dramatic with it. Yanks Paul's belt off, ties himself up. This is what they're going to do to you, Paul. They're going to tie you up, and they're going to hand you over to the Gentiles. They're all prophesying the same thing. Paul sees it. They see it. However, they come to radically different conclusions. They come to different understanding of what course of action Paul ought to take. Paul, seeing the same thing, hearing the same thing through the Holy Spirit, comes to the conclusion, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. They hear from the Holy Spirit, this is what's going to happen if he goes to Jerusalem, and they say, don't go to Jerusalem. They're hearing from the Holy Spirit 
but they have arrived at, from their listening to the Holy Spirit, radically different conclusions about the direction that Paul ought to take. And the young 19-year-old, 21, 22-year-old university student is saying, Aha, you see, Pastor Joshua, this is my point. We may be hearing from the Holy Spirit the same thing, but that doesn't necessarily mean that we know what the will of God is. My response to that is that if your understanding of the will of God is that you have to exactly know every last little thing of what's going to happen and what God wants you to do in every last little moment, you're going to paralyze yourself in your decision-making process. You may justify that approach based on this text here, but ultimately you're missing the thrust of this text And my caution to you is that knowing the will of God is not as complicated as it seems to be portrayed here in this particular chapter. When I was a kid, I loved to read these adventure storybooks. I'm sure everybody here has read one, or maybe your kids have read one at this point. Uh, You you start to read this adventure storybook, and it's like, well, you're going along, and then all of a sudden, you know, something happens, and now you have to make a decision. Do you go to the cave, or do you descend down into the valley? And if you choose go to the cave, you flip to this page. If you go down to the valley, you flip to some other page. And so you you keep flipping through this book, and you're kind of picking and choosing your adventure and trying to find out where it's going to go, and eventually... You uh, decide that uh, you're going to go to the cave, so you turn to page 36, and oops, guess what? The cave turns out to be a volcano, and it's erupting, and lava flows down on you, and you die. And that's the end of the adventure. And you're only like maybe halfway into the book, and you know there's a whole lot of other cool stuff that was coming on later if you'd made it to those other pages. And you're seeing this, and you're like, oh, you know, I missed out. I made the wrong choice. This is fun for little boys to play this kind of game with these books, but not so much so for grown adults trying to see what the will of the Lord is. Many of us fear that we'll take the wrong job or we'll buy the wrong house or we'll declare the wrong university major when we get to university or perhaps we'll marry even the wrong person We'll date the wrong person, marry the wrong person, and suddenly our lives will just blow up. That'll be the end of it. The adventure ends prematurely. And we'll be out of God's will. We'll be doomed to some sort of spiritual, relational nightmare of a life. I had one individual say to me not too long ago that they didn't want to be a loser. And I was like, man, I'm going to guess you heard that from watching... American politics on TV and say, oh yeah, Donald Trump, President Trump says that all the time. I don't want to be a big loser like what he says all the time. We don't want to be out of the center of God's will. We don't want to be a failure. Or to put it in Christianese, to use Christian terms, we'll find ourselves out of the best that God has for us. That's what we say. Several years ago, I read The Will of God as a Way of Life by Gerald Sitzer. And his book really helped me to crystallize my understanding of what I was really already convinced of what was wrong with this whole approach to discerning God's will. Listen to Sitzer's explanation. This is his, he's trying to encapsulate what's wrong with this modern phenomenon of trying to discern or somehow divine God's will. 
He says, conventional understanding of God's will defines it as a specific pathway that we should follow into the future. God knows what this pathway is, and he has laid it out there for us to follow. It's a path. We can follow the right path, right? But we must discover which of the many pathways we're going to go down. So he's laid it out for us, but he hasn't necessarily shown it to us. He's laid it out for us, and now our job is to sort of like figure it out, try to you know, divine what that path might be. And uh, if and when we make the right choice, then we will receive his favor. Then we will fulfill our divine destiny, and then we will succeed in life. Or, or to put it the opposite of Donald Trump's expression, we won't be big losers at that point. Okay? If we choose rightly, we will experience God's blessing. If we choose wrongly, we may lose our way, we may miss God's will for our lives, and we're going to remain forever lost in an incomprehensible maze. That's what Sitzer says there. Now, this is the wrong way to think about God's will. Expecting God to reveal some hidden will of direction is ultimately an invitation to disappointment and indecision. That's ultimately what it is. Waiting for God's will to somehow be magically revealed to you and spending your time trying to discern it is ultimately just a mess. It's a mess. It's bad for your life. It's harmful to your sanctification. And it allows far too many of our young brothers and sisters to be passive tinkerers who strongly feel more spiritual than what they have any right to feel. Hear my concern and hear my criticism carefully, young brother and sister. Sitting around trying to figure out God's will spelled out in the clouds in the sky on a sunny day is a waste of your time. And you have no right in doing that to think yourself more spiritual or more holy or more discerning than your older brothers and sisters, me included, as well as a host of others. The reason why this isn't the right way to approach it is that it tends to focus all of your attention on what are ultimately, listen closely, ultimately non-moral decisions. What do I mean by that? Well, Scripture does not tell us whether we should live in Nanaimo or none of it. It doesn't tell us whether we should go to Thompson Rivers University or the University of British Columbia. It doesn't tell us whether we should buy a house or rent an apartment. It doesn't tell us whether we should marry a wonderful Christian named Tim or some other wonderful Christian guy. Scripture doesn't tell us what to do this summer or what job to take or where to go to grad school. The most important issues for God, and hear me closely, okay? Hear me closely. It's not to say that whether or not you should live in none of it or Nanaimo are not decisions that matter to God. It's not to say that whether you should marry a guy named Tim or some other guy named Bob, it's not to say that that decision doesn't matter to God, but what I need you to hear is that these questions are not the most important questions to the Lord as revealed in his word. The most important issues for God are moral purity, theological faithfulness, compassion, joy, 
your witness, your testimony to the gospel, hospitality, love, worship, faith. I mean, you could run down the fruit of the Spirit if you'd wanted to. These kinds of things matter, and God speaks to these things clearly because these are the things that matter the most to him. These are his big concerns. And the problem is when we start to get into questions of, should I be a doctor or should I be a lawyer? What is the will of God in all of these things? Is that we are obsessing over things that God has not mentioned specifically in his word and that he may never mention by the Holy Spirit to us while by contrast we're spending very little time on the things that God has clearly revealed in his Bible and therefore which matter more to him and to which he is indeed calling us. Hear that. If you're the young kind of Christian girl or young man that's out in the field looking up at the stars, daydreaming wistfully about hopefully meeting a boy someday or meeting a girl someday, and you're trying to discern the right thing to do while your pastor is saying, hey, here's an opportunity for you to serve in the church, here's something you can do to be a blessing to seniors, or you know what, I would really just enjoy it if you would read your Bible and have a daily quiet time every day consistently, 15, 20 minutes in the Word, and you ignore all of those things while obsessing and focusing all of your time on a question not specifically mentioned in, Christ- in Scripture. Don't think yourself more holy or spiritual. These are the things that matter to the Lord. Now, when I say non-ethical or non-moral matters, again, I'm not talking about things that everything matters to the Lord. But when I say non-ethical or non-moral matters, I'm talking about decisions between two or more options, none of which is forbidden in Scripture. That's what I would call a non-moral or non-ethical question. Two or more options, none of which are forbidden in Scripture, okay? That's what I'm getting at. Choosing between a career in biology or a career in politics, well, it's a, non, it's a non-moral decision, but I, I should probably offer this caveat that when you choose any career, be it biology or especially politics, that your goal, your motivation in choosing that is to live a holy and righteous life for the Lord. Can you do that as a politician? It can be done, but it might be a short-lived career. Let's just be honest, okay? Now, that's a non-moral, non-ethical question. If you say to yourself, I'm going to become a politician, I'm going to slander and uh, slam my opposition, and I'm I'm going to lie and cheat, and I'm going to make promises on the campaign trail that I have absolutely no intention of keeping in order to get votes, in order to get elected, then you need to know that that is not God's will for your life, okay? That is not God's will for your life. Now, I just want to put that provisio out there, that that sort of caveat out there. Ultimately, choosing between biology and politics, these are non-ethical questions. These are non-moral questions because neither career is expressly forbidden in Scripture, and we can enter into either profession so long as we do so with a pure heart and with a desire to honor the Lord. That can be done. So, as long as your motives are right, it doesn't matter what you choose. Neither option is closed off to you. You say, well, but Pastor Josh, Pastor Josh, like one is going to lead to God's blessing, and one is going to lead to God's non-blessing? 
Is that really how the Lord works, dear brother and sister? Really? In this conventional view, where you think that you have to be inside of God's will, and if you get outside of God's will, and if you get outside of God's will, he's not going to bless you, what you're portraying God to look like is some sort of a sneaky trickster kind of God. Like God is dangling his blessing in front of you just to toy with you. When you look at the cross, you look at all that your God has done for you. And when you consider the great pains he went to to gather his disciples, his apostles together to make sure that there would be a church that would launch out of his atonement and what he did for you on the cross, even down to the simple fact that he had what his crime was nailed to the top of the cross in three different languages as he is being crucified at a crossroads entering into Jerusalem, does it not seem clear from all we see in the cross, let alone all the rest of Scripture, that God is very much so interested in making it painfully, obviously, unavoidably clear to you that he loves you, that he desires your blessing, and that he does speak, he does reveal himself and his desires and his interests clearly to you. When you portray this wrestling over trying to find God's mysterious hidden will, when you portray that as like the ultimate question of your life, what you're suggesting is that God is a secretive trickster manipulator that won't be straight with you or won't be candid with you. And that's blasphemy. I want you to hear that carefully. Your preoccupation, your obsession with trying to figure out this mysterious, hidden, unexplained will of God, all results from a heart that subtly is slamming the character of God. He has been clear with you. He has died for you. Believe that you can trust him and look at what he says and what are those things that are important to him. Get that firmly fixed in your mind. No, we do not have a sneaky God. No, he is not trying to confuse us or to hide the truth from us. God does not hide things from his people. There are lots of scenarios that we don't know. And of course, there are lots of mysteries in terms of how God works amongst us and how he sovereignly directs human history. There are lots of mysteries that we can't fully figure out that we won't fully understand until we're on the other side of glory, for sure. But to say that God hasn't made clear to us what he needs us to do, that he hasn't provided new mercies every morning and shown us the path that we need to walk in, that is a lie. God is not a magic eight ball that we shake up and peer into whenever we have a decision to make. Mm -hmm. He's not. He is a good God who gives us brains. He shows us the way of obedience. And yes, he invites us to take risks for him, for his glory. So when it comes to following God's will, we now need to ask the question, is there a better way? And indeed there is. When we look at the Old Testament, we see that there are numerous prescriptions required for faithful, obedient living. The Pentateuch, the law given through Moses, was all laid out. This is how you need to live. This is how you need to follow the Lord. And of course, over and over again, this expectation of righteousness was put on his people. They needed to live perfectly or otherwise they weren't going to make it to heaven. All that was meant not to condemn them ultimately, but to get them to focus their hope on the coming Messiah. 
In the Old Testament, we have the book of Proverbs, which deals with wisdom, how to handle ourselves in any number of a different number of scenarios and situations. We've got the book of Ecclesiastes. We have the wisdom literature. We come to the New Testament. Similar, we have wisdom literature in the book of James. But then again, when you look at the gospel, when you look at the four gospels and many of the letters, all of the letters, in fact, written to the churches, we find that our hope is rooted in the cross. And as we look to Christ, as we seek to honor him, there are all of these moral prescriptions and requirements laid out for us that we're to honor the Lord through things like telling the truth, loving our brothers and sisters, going to church, All of these things are clearly spelled out. This is how you walk with the Lord. This is how you honor him. Things that aren't really mentioned at all. Does God want me to live in none of it? Or does God want me to live in Nanaimo? And I have found that when people really start to wrestle with that, Nanaimo usually wins. Why do you think that is? Does God not love those poor people in none of it? Well, maybe there's something wrong with the question we're posing and not with the God we're kneeling before in prayer. Yeah. There is a better way. There is a better way. And I want you to listen to this. This is from Matthew chapter 6, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. If you want, you can flip there. This is Matthew six twenty-five to 34. Jesus preaching to his disciples. He says, therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. Don't have anxiety about your life. Don't be worried about your life, what you're going to do, what you're going to wear. He's specific. He says, don't don't worry about what you're going to eat or what you're going to drink, nor about your body, what you're going to put on. Is not life more than food? Is not the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap. They don't gather into barns. And yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, he says, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is here today alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more so clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, don't be anxious saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. Don't lay on your back plucking daisies or staring at the cloud, wondering about every little decision and whether or not you will be in the center of God's will if you go this way or you go that way. Jesus is saying that your Father in heaven knows all of your needs that you are more precious to him than a bird, that you matter more to him than a flower. And he is going to care for you abundantly far above and beyond than the flowers or the birds, which seem to get along just fine. If he can care for them, he can care for you. The issue is you are not trusting him. No, no, no. What does Jesus say our focus needs to be on? He says, don't worry about all those things. He says, your father knows you need all of those things. The assurance is there that whether we struggle with anxiety or not, or to put it in a slightly different scenario, whether we're struggling with being in the center of God's will and creating this false dichotomy of of all of these kinds of decisions, which scripture never addresses, he says, God's going to take care of you. His mercy is going to be there. He's going to look after you. But here's what you are to do. He says, seek 
First, the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. And then the conclusion, which comes at the end, he says, therefore, don't be anxious about tomorrow. Tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. The big idea in this passage couldn't be any clearer. Jesus doesn't want us worrying about the future. God knows what we need to live. When he wants us to die, we will die. And when he does not want us to die, we can be assured that we will live and he will care for us and he will provide for us. No, what God wants us to focus on is proclaiming Christ, seeking the kingdom of God, looking for his righteousness. He'll provide the food, the drink, the jobs, the housing, everything that we need to live and to glorify him in this life until he wants us to glorify him by dying. Worrying and fretting and obsessing about the future, even if it is a pseudo-holy worrying that attempts to discern the will of God, will not add one single hour to your life, and it will certainly not add any happiness or holiness either. Okay? Hear that, young people. And you know I love you. Hear that criticism. We must fight to believe that God has mercy for today's troubles, and we must fight to believe that God has mercy for tomorrow's troubles. Jesus doesn't treat obsession with the future as a personal quirk. He says that it is the evidence of little faith, which means that when we begin to say to ourselves, oh, I just got to figure out the exact right path, We're engaging in an activity in which we are placing the onus for our happiness and our future and all that will come to pass on ourselves. And we could never control the future. If there's one thing we've learned about COVID-19, the best laid plans often go awry. God's will will always prevail. And that's really the thrust of it. God is the one who is sovereign. And whatever decisions we may make, we must always take into account that providence will supersede, that history will move forward as God has ordained it to. If you turn back and you look in Acts chapter 21, let's look at this one more time. They're having this argument. They're going back and forth. Both parties are saying, hey, the Holy Spirit is saying this, so therefore do that. Paul is saying, the Holy Spirit is telling me that when I get to Jerusalem, I'm going to be arrested and I'm going to have afflictions and persecution. So I'm going to Jerusalem. They're saying, hey, the Holy Spirit is telling us that uh, when you get to Jerusalem, you're going to be arrested and you're going to have afflictions. So don't go to Jerusalem. Here we have a decision to be made. Paul is convinced and persuaded that he is going to go to Jerusalem. This is his decision. This is what he has decided. And when he makes it clear, look at what Luke says, what he concludes. He says in verse uh, 14, since Paul, since he would not be persuaded. We couldn't change his mind. We couldn't shift him off his course of action. He was resolved. I'm going to Jerusalem. This is what I'm going to do. Since we couldn't change his mind, since we couldn't convince him otherwise, we ceased. 
we stopped. We stopped the argument. We stopped trying to tell him that this wasn't the right move. We stopped with all of that. And look at what Luke says here. He says, let the will of the Lord be done. You have two groups of people, Paul on the one side and all these other brothers and sisters on the other side. They're all hearing correctly from the Holy Spirit, and they're all arguing for different courses of action. But ultimately, Paul is saying, this is my decision. This is my decision. And Luke and all of the guys on his side, Agabus and the four married, unmarried daughters of, of uh, Philip, they're, they're saying basically, let's trust in God's providence. Okay? Let's trust in what God is going to do. Why then does Paul choose to go to Jerusalem? Look at what he says. Verse verse 12, verse 13. Paul answered, What are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem. Notice this. And if you have a pen or a pencil, underline this in your Bible. I'm ready to be imprisoned or even to die. Look at this. For the name of the Lord Jesus. I'm going to do this for the name of Christ. Paul's focus, he was trusting in God's providence. He was trusting that the Lord was in control His decision to go to Jerusalem was rooted in a desire to proclaim the name, to exalt the name of Jesus. That's at the heart of decision-making, young brother, young sister. That is the focus, that is the goal, that is the drive for how we are to live the Christian life. Hear me very carefully. God cares about every decision you will ever make. But in every decision you are confronted with, you should not look at that decision, whatever it may be, in isolation from what God's overarching desire for your life is. And it is this, that you would exalt and proclaim the name of Jesus. That's it in a nutshell. When we look at all of these things, what we need to be reminded of We have limited time on this earth. We are given a finite number of days. Jesus tells this parable in which he says there were three guys. One was given five talents, one was given three talents, and one was given one talent. The five went out and made ten, the three went out and made six, and the one, the guy that had one talent, he buried it in a hole. And when the master returned... The one that didn't do anything had even that one talent that he was given stripped and taken away from him and given it to another. And the judgment is there. That we can take the time and the abilities and the resources that God has given us and we become so focused and obsessed on such inconsequential aspects of decision making that we will bog down and be paralyzed and we won't do anything. Just Step out and seek the most immediate way that you can to exalt and magnify the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
The Apostle Paul is convinced, having planted churches all across the Mediterranean, that he needs to go to Jerusalem. He wants to go because he's collected this offering in order to provide relief for the saints in Jerusalem. The Holy Spirit is telling him that once he gets there, he's going to be in prison and he's going to be, there are going to be other afflictions that await for him. And everybody else is telling him that too. But Paul, nevertheless, is committed to going and to giving this offering to the saints in Jerusalem to bless them. And if he is imprisoned, if afflictions do come, he rests himself on the assurance that having provided relief to the saints, he will magnify and exalt the name of Christ in the imprisonment and in the trial whenever it comes. Hugh Lattimore was a a minister in England. There was a period of time in which uh, the Protestants were allowed to flourish, and then eventually Bloody Mary resumed the throne of England. She was a devout and committed Catholic. And having taken the throne, she resolved to have all these Puritan preachers executed and put to death. And so an officer was sent in order to bring in the various ministers for trial, and a particular officer was sent to take Latimer, Hugh, Hugh Latimer, and to bring him to London. Latimer was given just six hours of notice that they were on their way, that they would come to get him. But instead of running and fleeing, he just packed and he prepared for his journey, a journey which he knew would ultimately end in his execution. When the officer arrived to take him, Latimer said, Come on in, friend, you're welcome. I go willingly to London to give an account of my faith as ever I went to any place in the world. I don't doubt that as the Lord has made me worthy formerly to preach to two other excellent princes, that he will now enable me to bear witness to the truth before Mary, either to her eternal comfort or to her eternal discomfort. I love that line. One way or another, I'm going to preach to Mary. And so he goes. Off he went to London. And of course, Bloody Mary burned him at the stake. That was her nickname. She didn't burn him alone. She burned two other preachers with him. And as the flames were leaping up, Latimer encouraged the two guys next to him with these words. He said, today we shall light a candle in England that will never go out. The costliest fire that the Roman Catholic Church ever lit was that particular fire. (laughs) It became the flame that ignited the English Reformation and it resulted in the death of Catholicism as a governing power in England. A man who had conviction, a man who believed that God was in control, a man who ultimately rested in the providence of God, went willingly, knowing that one way or another, God would take his contributions and use them for his own glory. And that's what we're called to do. As we conclude today, let us remind ourselves that when we say, let the will of the Lord be done, The will of the Lord will be done. Amen? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask today that in all these things we would be faithful to proclaiming the name of Christ, to exalting and magnifying the Lord. God, let us not think that somehow we can trifle with your divine providence, that somehow we can shift and alter and manipulate your plan for the history of the world. Lord, you're in control. You're sovereign over everything. And we've been entrusted with decisions that can be made to glorify you. One way or another, Lord, remind us, you will be glorified. 
God, our prayer today, especially for our young ones, is that we would step out in faithful obedience, that we would take up the call here and now to magnify your son's name. Lord, one way or another, help us to take what you have given to us, the time, the material resources, the opportunities that we have. God, let us be faithful. We ask that you do this in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.